Excellent. Well, uh, so I'm Russell Wilkinson. If we go to the next slide for Dynatrace, I'd appreciate that. Uh, so I'm a partner cloud evangelist. What is that exactly? It's a big fancy title for I'm a partner facing SE. So normally they don't let me out in front of customers that often anymore. Uh, apparently been in the industry for a little bit too long. We were, Fred and I were joking earlier about uh, ages on that. And I like to joke that uh, when I got in the industry, everyone was telling me about the punch card days. Uh, if anyone wants to sit down and have a beer, so to speak, coming up and talk about Network 286 and NLMs, um, let's have a chat. But in the meantime, uh, you know, who is Dynatrace? So Dynatrace, we obviously are the, uh, you know, you look at any of the marketing materials that are out there, the analyst reports, et cetera, work the leader in what we call intelligent and automated observability. Uh, that's great, but ultimately, what is it that we're really looking to do? And on the next slide, as Kathy moves forward for me, one, uh, what you'll see is this is really our mission, our purpose, and our vision. So everything we do is underneath these three pillars. So what is our mission? Our mission is to deliver answers and intelligent automation from data. What does that mean? That's the observability side of what we do. So that takes our Davis, it takes our solution with all the ways we ingest data and we analyze that to provide answers either from an observability perspective, from a speeds and feeds, how well is it performing from a functionality perspective to how effectively is it at achieving whatever outcomes you're trying to achieve with your app application. Uh, you know, when you're Survey Monkey, are the users completing surveys? If you're Ford, GM, or Chrysler, it's not are they buying vehicles, it's are they using or searching dealer inventories, things like that. But more importantly than that, and where the specialties from a partner like WI come into play, it's providing that intelligent automation from that data. So we've got this rich data set. We provide some answers and insights into what's happening. And now let's automate a response based off of that. And ultimately, why are we doing this? Because we want to make sure that our customers out there have what we say are flawless and secure digital interactions. So going back to our solution, that's the newest capability we have, which is that ability to uh, provide runtime vulnerability uh, protect, uh, detection and protection of your application stack. Uh, but again, that first part is to enable flawless interactions. We want to make sure that while we're turning around and providing that observability and the ability to automate the responses based on what we see, we're doing that because we want everything to be flawless for our customers that are out there and our customers being your, you, the customer that's uh, here on our call today. And ultimately, our vision with our platform then is to have a world where software works perfectly uh, by instrumenting observability into every aspect of that, regardless, we're talking about the mainframe, the monolith, microservices into a multi-cloud environment, what we're really going to be talking about here today, our goal is to make sure that all of your applications work as well as they possibly can. So that's Dynatrace in a nutshell. So I appreciate that. So um, uh, unless we have another slide, I can't remember Kathy on the deck, but uh, Fred, I think I'm going to pass it back over to you. Yeah, thanks. So folks, we, we, uh, we're just going to start discussing some of the topics that uh, Russell just brought up. But if you have any questions or you want to get involved in the conversation, please feel free, right? This isn't, uh, we're not here to talk you to death. But Russell, one of the things I, I want to talk about first, we, we you know, we, we met the other day and you brought up some examples mm -hmm. of, of really sort of the right way and the wrong way you see people with the modern cloud, right? It's not so much the lift and shift, but as we get to modern apps or microservices, you know, you brought up a great example, and I want you to touch on that a little bit, like where you saw it go right and where it went wrong. Absolutely. So yeah, when we were talking about that and, and you know, going from lifting and shifting is just one step. We'll get back to that one in a second, because that is part of a cloud migration that we typically go through. But um, what, 
let's start with what happened back in December. Um, hopefully, uh, I don't know, uh, you flying out of Boston, I don't know what Southwest presence is up there, but uh, oh, yeah. hopefully you weren't trying to book a flight between, uh, I think it was December 21st, to, or no, December 11th to the 21st or 21st to 31st, I think it was the latter. It was a 10-day window. Hopefully you weren't part of that uh, fun that went on. But if you remember, you know, um, Southwest had a situation where they have, you know, they, they have a very complex routing uh, mechanism for how they deal with flights. It's not a hub and spoke, it's a mesh topology. And as such, it's very hard for them when they start to see an impact that's geographic in nature of the significant weather event, let alone a weather event that takes apart uh, several different geographies at the same time. Um, companies like Delta and United, because of their model, typically can kind of route around that and use their hub and spoke model to redirect aircraft on the fly. Uh, the problem was is that Southwest has not modernized their application stack. They, they are in a, a vast amount of what I call technical debt. You can see some great articles out there. Technical debt can fall under various uh, different um, umbrellas. But in this situation, this was a case of punting any modernization efforts they wanted, they needed to do, shouldn't say wanted to do, needed to do uh, down the road for years. And ultimately, the result of this was one, extreme customer dissatisfaction. Um, you know, it's, it's a fleeting world out there right now with regards to customer loyalty. And uh, while we all have our loyalties to our specific brands we really like, it's also very easy to switch loyalties because there's always another vendor that's out there going, hey, you've got status with them. I'll give you status if you want to try our little sample over here. And as such, you know, this 10-day window of basically what was an outage where they had to cancel 6,700 flights due to nothing more than poor software that could not adapt to their changing needs. Uh, ultimately, they're trying to manage, I think it was 20,000 employees via phone calls. And there were situations where if you read the articles on this, it's not a case of they were staffed incorrectly. They were staffed correctly. They just couldn't figure out where anybody was. And so pilots were on the hold for two to three hours. So there's an example of, you know, uh, organizations, if you're not turning around, even if you don't think of yourselves as a software company, you know, I'm in Detroit and one of the big customers here, companies here is called Rock Financial, and they like to claim they're an IT, they're a intellectual property slash IT organization that makes money by basically originating mortgage loans. Uh, you know, if you don't have that mentality, then you're very much in a situation where you're working from behind trying to catch up to ultimately the, your peers or startups that are going to come and sweep the rug out from underneath you. Yeah, I mean, you, you see a lot of these services really commoditized, and it doesn't take a lot to switch, right? And I like, so the, the other thing you brought up, which I thought was great, was where it does work, which you wouldn't even think of, was Domino's. You know, I was going to ask, so um, for Fred, is there any chance at all you invested in them back in 2012? No, we talked about this the other day. You, Yes, you, you've, I already know the answer, but this is interesting. Yeah, so so if you invested, say, in the Dow Jones Industrial Average trending stocks, uh, you know, basically, a, uh, I forget the phrase now because I'm not an investment guy. I've got a person that I, I say, please just do something smart with the money and don't let me spend it. Uh, but basically, the Dow Jones from January 3rd, 2012 to December 30th, 2021 had a basically a 200% return on investment. Not too bad, uh, but not great. Uh, Domino's, January 3rd, 2012, December 30th, 2021, went from $34 a share to $557 a share. It's a 1,500% return. Domino's, for those of y'all 
pizza. pizza. We don't think of, of, of IT slash pizza slash, you know, technology slash digital digitization, et cetera. But do you know what precipitated that run in the stock? What made them so highly successful, made them the hottest stock play for a 10-year run when you think about all the startups? A legacy pizza company was one of the hottest performing stocks over a 10-year stretch. What was the driver for that? It wasn't the pizza. Well, they, they did do the fresh ingredients. They did change a little bit there. By the way, if anybody uh, ever gets a chance to go visit Domino's headquarters, they do have a test kitchen. I highly recommend it, especially like Thanksgiving when they do their turkey and stuffing pizzas. It sounds gross, but it's actually pretty darn yummy. Uh, but uh, they went through a significant drive to digitize their business. And, you know, when we think about digitization, what does that mean? That means getting not necessarily away from brick and mortar, but presenting more of a digital front and a digital interface for your users to interact with. And in their situation, it came up with uh, one online web ordering, but more importantly, that, that, that stupid app that I have on my phone for the, uh, the ordering Domino's pizza so that you can track where it is, you know, oh, it's being prepped, oh, it's in the oven. And I don't know if it's real. I'm, I believe it's real. But the fact Close is, enough. I see that. Yeah, you see that red line going, you're excited, aren't you? Right. Um, so, you know, it's like, oh, it's out for delivery. I no longer have to sit here in suspense. Uh, their efforts. And, you know, they didn't just start in 2012 and start to turn around and digitize their business and migrate to the cloud. They actually started some years earlier than that. They, you know, they were in a the exact same situation Southwest was at exactly the same time that the CEO that put them in the situation came to came to the lead Southwest. So at the exact same instance, they were in the same situation. In fact, Domino's was doing, I was at VMware at the time, you know, this little startup that had started back around 2002, 2003, they were one of my first customers and they were doing what I call high availability via eBay, which basically means they were literally scouring eBay for parts to keep their legacy point of sale systems, back backend point of sale systems up and running. Right. And so we virtualized that. So that was kind of that first part of the lift and ship. Let's virtualize the platform so we at least get it on modern CPU architectures. Then they turn around and put a cloud migration play into place long before cloud became a thing, you know, as virtualization became the underpinning behind somebody else's compute, i.e. the first iteration of cloud. That's really what started that uh, drive towards cloud adoption for them. So pizza. Yeah, and but you bring up a good point. So like when we talk about cloud, and they went to the cloud and we, we went that well, virtualization, EC2 instances, but really modern cloud is way more than that today, right? So when we talk, when we define, you know, modern cloud and what people are talking about or what, you know, when you start to take these applications and, you know, really decouple them from the operating system, make it complicated. So mm -hmm. what is, what are people like, what is, what in your mind, what is that today? What are we talking about? When we talk about modern cloud and applications. You know, um, so so the, the, the fun part there is there's always something new when it comes into play. So let's kind of like do like a little quick little roadmap to talk about what we're seeing is of the state of the cloud today. And this is a white paper that we've put out there and we can share the link with you for anybody that wants a copy of it. But, um, you know, really, when we look at it, this was a, a, a migration from mainframes. And to be honest, they're never going away. They're still there. But mainframes to monolith architectures, to VMs, to containers, to then serverless functions. And and then the myriad of other services that are coming around and supporting those. And, 
you know, we all know about that uh, VM migration that happened, you know, going from single siloed servers to many virtualized servers on a single system. Uh, and then eventually the ability to lift and shift them if off of uh, on-premises into quote unquote, somebody else's VMware environment or virtualization platform, i.e. that kind of first lift and shift of the cloud. Uh, but then, uh, you know, along comes this little technology called Kubernetes, this new capability, which is going to say, wait a second, if we can extrapolate that hardware from the operating system, why can't we extrapolate the, the process from the operating system? Uh, so they further extrapolation out. So um, really, this says, let's look at our application architecture, you know, when you come through and do one of our like training boot camps uh, to get familiar on our platform. We have a great application that we like to demo called Easy Travel. And the first thing you'll see is it's based off of Java, as a lot of applications are, or .NET, et cetera. And what you'll find is, is that uh, you know there's a lot of functions happening in a, in a JVM or a .NET instance. And uh, the problem with that is, is that when you go through and let's say, for example, in this travel application, you know, there's a, I want to go validate uh, a destination and that same service validates my credit card and that same service authenticates me. So if I want to update the user authentication mechanism, I've got to go and do a user acceptance test across all these other functions. So if we can decouple those, make them lightly uh, connected and, and make them isolated uh, from a development perspective, now I could turn around and be much more agile and say, hey, I want to update our authentication mechanism. I want to update the credit card verification service. I want to update the travel destination search service without worrying about affecting anything else. So that's the first shift that true cloud really gives us, Kubernetes really being that underpinning as a cloud operating system. Um, and as customers are starting to migrate for this, you know, initially it was deploying on-premises and try to get our, our feet underneath us with regards to these Kubernetes environments. And now as, you know, things like uh, Fargate come to play and uh, Google, I'm sorry, um, GKE, et cetera, uh, get more and more adoption, what we're seeing is, is that they've even extrapolated out that you don't even have to manage the Kubernetes environment out there. Right. What we found through that white paper is in our latest survey, what we're seeing is, is that uh, you know, cloud-based Kubernetes environments are growing at five times the rate that the on-premises deployments are growing. So customers are, are quickly moving and having more confidence in the ability to host that on AWS, Azure, and GCP. Uh, the other benefit that we're starting to see from that now is that the workloads um, auxiliary workloads, those backend functions that our applications have as opposed to the front ends are now running at two to one, uh, two times to one, the number of instances that the front end application, uh, the front end of the applications are. Another aspect of this by shifting to the cloud is that we're seeing that the compute platforms backing a cloud-based Kubernetes deployment versus an on-premises is significantly smaller, not just in the number of nodes, but in the size of the nodes. So it's really giving customers an opportunity to right-size these clusters. And ultimately what that's doing is it's giving them a significant return on investment and savings, but it's also now starting to open up other growth areas around security, uh, database migration, and adopting CI/CD methodologies and SRE practices for maintaining your application stats which is an area I know you guys really excel in. Yeah, but, but it, it's not all roses, right? So you can do this. It sounds great. Let's just, let's just quote unquote, containerize our app and we're off on the races, right? But unfortunately, 
in practice, sometimes we get to that point and it's like, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. We're starting to run into problems. Where are those problems? You know, where do you see those problems and how do we overcome those problems? Like, so, okay, I've containerized it. It's not running well. It's like, even in the cloud, I have less visibility because I can't see the underlying hardware. You brought that up, which is great. And, and on-prem, I said, yeah, I can, I can handle that. But in the cloud, you know, there's a, there's a limit to what I can do. I can add more worker nodes or expand the cluster, but that doesn't solve the problem. So how do we know what, that things are running well or what my end user experience is? Yeah, and that that that's the biggest challenge, I think, with any of these maturations of cloud have had to go through. Um, let's go back through that history lesson again. So we were in that static environment with the uh, web mid-tier and back-end database running on uh, physical servers, one-to-one -one ratio for each of the different tiers. And of course, you had your basic point of, uh, or point siloed solutions to help pull the metrics from whatever it was. You know, you're the server admin versus the, uh, the, the Java guy versus the back-end storage versus the nice. database. And, uh, streams of data, too many streams of data. And too isolated. And of course, right. then you layer on virtualization on top of that. And then of course, it was the new kid on the block. So it got pointed to as the, the fault of everything. Oh, it's because 100%. of this weird virtualization. You know, it's yeah. got to be a fault. Then I found out about slow drain and I just blamed DMC because they couldn't track it. They didn't have a tool to track it. So they couldn't provide observability. And that's ultimately what we're getting to here is lack of observability. And that's the same thing, Fred, to your point on Kubernetes. You know, um, it's real easy for Kubernetes to offset a poor performing application by just throwing more resources at it, whether you know it or not. You know, um, you're seeing response time degradation. And so Kubernetes is going to say, hmm, I need more containers to support the calls coming in for that particular service because there's not enough entities for that service to, to, to provide the responses. Oh, now there's not enough compute. Let me hide, dynamically expand out the cluster. And th then I can throw the more containers onto there. And next thing you know, you've got a much larger environment than you intended to due to the goodness that Kubernetes bring in, in automatic scaling, both uh, right. you know, breadth and width. At cost, at cost and effort and, touch. Yeah. and management, et cetera. So really it's observability. And you know that's where we come into play as well as other solutions like things that are baked in already uh, that we fully embrace and support from Dynatrace. So for example, we've got a rich set of, of telemetry we gather via our proprietary capabilities with respects to our one agent. Uh, but it's also looking at seeing what are the developers doing about building in observability into the code natively, i.e. enter the world of open telemetry. So now be able to pull that in and provide some additional data. Uh, the native tools for Kubernetes in presenting metrics out through, for example, Prometheus. Uh, it's you know providing the insight there. So the more you can see what's going on, the better control you're going to get of everything, not just from an application performance perspective, but from a business analytics perspective. Are your applications achieving the outcome? Going back to our point earlier, Fred, which we were talking about the agility that, especially the younger generation that's coming up, I hate to you know, put myself in that bucket now because I'm not going to move away from my bank unless something drastically happens just because how it is. But I look at my 23-year-old daughter. She has no bank loyalty. She doesn't care the fact that we bank with the same bank as a family for 100 years now. She's like, dad, you know, they've got a great app. I'm using it. Um, but the point here is that, um, you know, it's about making sure that the applications are achieving the business outcomes that you want them to and having observability into that side of it. So really, that's that's the biggest thing customers are starting to struggle with now 
which is one, how do they know what's going on? Is the application performing the way they expected it to now that they've modernized it? And two, is it eliciting the expectations they want from a business perspective? And the underpinning behind that, observability. Yeah, so so kind of a key component, especially as you start to develop your apps and push them out in sort of a foundational technology, you think when you start making this transition to modern applications, to microservices, what specifically is Dynatrace? Like you, so you brought up there's other, there's other players in this market, obviously, but Dynatrace being a leader, what specifically is Dynatrace doing in this area to kind of get ahead of that or today or looking forward or even, you know, what, what's, what's a differentiator today? Yeah, so um, really where we're headed with this kind of goes into where the industry is headed as well with regards to um, the best way to look at it from this perspective to make it a story for everybody that's on the phone. We, we were chatting about the uh, the uh, the Red Sox earlier. Here I am in Detroit, got Comerica Park across the field. Um, is let's let's talk about the Oakland Athletics. Do you remember what the Oakland A's are kind of famous for now with regards to how they put a team on the field? Right, Moneyball. Moneyball, which i.e. sabermetrics, and yeah. the underpinnings behind that is data analytics. It's, you know, what's the most efficient team that they can put out onto the field that gets them to the playoffs year after year without them having to spend money. So it's all about the data. And that's ultimately what we're seeing our customers go through, which is this data explosion. Uh, for example, um, you know, I'm from Memphis, Southern Redneck. Uh, guys, come on down anytime or, or anybody's welcome to come on down. Um, I've got, uh, unfortunately, much to my wife's chagrin, four different smokers, uh, all different purposes, different types, et cetera. One of them happens to be a Traeger pellet smoker. And uh, my Traeger pellet smoker is cloud connected. I'm like, wait a second. That's what? right. You were talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, what does the cloud have to do with barbecue? Uh, you know, they went through a cloud migration uh, a couple of years ago. They went to a microservices-based based architecture of the back end because basically they wanted to pull data from their pellet smokers so they could do predictive analysis models around, you know, uh, what types of replacement part requests do they see coming up based on the number of hours, et cetera, because they could start to turn around and uh, pre-seed their supply chain more effectively for maintenance. Um, also, their biggest revenue source, much like HP used to get their revenue from Printer Inc., uh, you know, them, it's wood pellet sales, uh, so they can make sure the right wood pellets are in the right location at the right time. Mm. In fact, uh, you know, they went from in 2021, I think the number was two petabytes of information. Uh, last year, uh, they collected three zettabytes of information from their smokers. So ultimately, Getting back to your question, Fred, which was the, okay, so what are we doing at Dynatrace to better prepare for this? Um, you know, this is where Dynatrace, we're in a very unique situation that we, because we are a SaaS platform, because when we developed this platform, we changed our development methodologies from waterfall-based software development lifecycle, you know, feature releases every six months with major forklift upgrades, et cetera, uh, to a DevOps-based two-week sprint model. Uh, because we went through that, we have the great ability to uh, roll out new features very quickly. Some of the features we're rolling out this year, uh, we just rolled out. One is Grail. Grail is a new backend architecture. You don't have to buy Grail. If you are a Dynatrace customer, you're going to get benefit of it, period. 
Uh, but what it really is is a back-end uh, architectural change with uh, what we call a data lake house. I should say we call it. It's an industry standard term, data yeah. lake house. Um, but uh, I definitely, I didn't hear about it before last year. So definitely it's kind of like it's supposed to be the best of a data warehouse as well as the best of a data lake. Data lake. Uh, the benefits of both without any of the overhead and issues of them. And what the Grail platform is going to allow us to do is several different features coming to market this year. One is going to be the ability now to uh, use Grail as the platform for hosting log data. And when we do this, because of the way we've designed this backend database, uh, we can ingest petabytes worth of data a day on a per tenant basis. So that means each one of the customers out there, their environments are separated and they can look at these rates individually, not collectively. And uh, they no longer, uh, for logs that we've ingested, regardless of the format, whether they're flat files or JSONs or what type of data we have coming in, um, you no longer have to index on ingest. You no longer have to deal with data tiers. So you don't have to worry about rehydration. And so, and so you can search at scale uh, immediately. Uh, the other aspect of then on top of that, we'll be able to pull other data sets in. And for example, like uh, metrics from even devices and entities that you didn't even think about. For example, bringing in per EC2 instance spend and stitching that back to the data set and analyze it in that situation and fashion. Uh, and so we're gonna roll out a brand new front end on top of Dynatrace called App Engine. So you can build applications on Dynatrace to take not only the data that we've collected via the one agent or Prometheus or OpenTelemetry or Telegraph, but also data sets out in the world that you've never thought about bringing back in and tie them together to build your own custom apps to analyze the data you want to analyze it in a way you want to analyze it. Um, there's some other things we're also rolling out, et cetera, but those are really the big ones we're driving towards, which is data analytics as opposed to just classic observability. Right. Uh, the metrics and traces we're gathering for observability is just data as well as everything else that we happen to be collecting. Yeah. Intel intelligence behind the data, like right. Actionable exactly. items, yeah. 